0: A rare show of defiance in China. Protests erupt across the country with calls for President Xi Jinping to go as frustration mounts over strict Covid controls. Meanwhile, profits at China's industrial companies slide, weighed down by Covid restrictions and falling factory gate prices as authorities unleash waves of new stimulus to spur demand.
1: Oil prices plunge, hitting their lowest level since 2021, and Asian equities also slide as China rattles markets.
2: And Black Friday online sales, topping 9 billion dollars, hitting a new record as consumers flock to wait for it, buy now and pay later platforms to offset soaring prices.
0: Well, very good morning everybody welcome to scorebox this monday morning widespread protests then in cities across china over the weekend with people taking to the streets to demonstrate against the communist party's zero covid policy unrest seen in parts of beijing Arumpchi, wuhan and shanghai among others. In Shanghai, people openly called on Xi Jinping to step down. It comes as new COVID cases hit a record high for the fifth straight day. Let's get out to Sam with more on the protests and what this, what this is doing to investor sentiment across the Asia region. Sam, good morning.
3: Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, investors continuing to be in a cautious mood as they have been watching these unprecedented scenes over in China over the weekend of these people taking to their streets uh, in what is a a very rare show of defiance of these uh, zero COVID lockdowns, of course. And so we have certainly seen uh, mainland Chinese stocks uh, showing sharp declines today. We've also seen that spilling out into uh, the commodities markets as well. We've seen uh, oil prices pulling back. We've also seen the Chinese Chinese currency uh, weakening as well. That is off the back, of course, of that triple R cut announcement we got uh, late on Friday uh, as well. But what we're seeing with these protests is uh, something that is uh, exceptionally unusual, and that is because uh, of the scale of what we're seeing. These demonstrations in China, the, uh, the protests are happening everywhere, as you mentioned, from Beijing to Shanghai to Wuhan to Rongqi, and that is what's very different here. Of course, we we're talking about these very isolated incidents last week in places like Guangzhou uh, and Zhengzhou over smaller incidents. But this seems to be a collective frustration now over feeling like prisoners in their own countries because they are watching people around the world, uh, of course, being able to travel. They're watching the World Cup. They're asking, why can't we sit in a stadium and not wear a mask? And so uh, really, this is just a show of discontent uh, against what are really being described as draconian measures. And what this frustration really is about is the mixed messaging that Chinese citizens are getting from their own policymakers. because of course just a couple of weeks ago um, citizens and investors alike got very excited about this suggestion that they would be coming up with these 20 measures to certainly relax some of these COVID curbs and then fast forward just a couple of weeks and now we have another record breaking day of cases and we continue to off the back of that see more restrictions, more lockdown and more testing. Now now, of course, there doesn't seem to be any appetite right now for this sort of Shanghai-style blanket lockdown. There has been some criticism of this one-size-fits-all approach, but the other catalyst here, what this has largely been fueled by, is this fatal fire over in Urumqi, over in Xinjiang. And what the accusation there uh, is that this lockdown prevented those people from being able to actually escape that fire. The authorities have denied that, but as you have seen in those pictures, the anger uh, is very much on full display display guys back to you in London
1: Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the latest there meantime our colleagues elsewhere in Singapore have also been asking guests how they expect Chinese authorities to handle the ongoing COVID curbs alongside a slowing economy
2: from one perspective you, you can potentially see ongoing disruptions in in supply chains and therefore it means the inflation dynamic remains uncertain and uncertain at a high level um, so that that will ensure that central banks you know, remain pretty vigilant.
4: Whereas the virus has evolved in such a way it's getting uh, very costly to continue to implement that uh, dynamic zero COVID policy. So, um, you know, there's no good choice facing uh, policymakers in China. At this point, uh, we are in the area where cases are the highest, uh, 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 you know, daily new cases are the highest and the uh, market is also uh, struggling to figure out uh, what may come next in national lockdown or just a forced and disorderly exit. Look, it's very hard to project. Um, Ironically, it could be very positive for the global economy because if we do actually get a, if the Chinese government does listen and we do get an opening up of sorts or an easing of sorts, that's obviously going to be a big positive.
2: Well, very interesting there. The divergence of opinion, that last gentleman seeing uh, positivity ultimately from what we're seeing in China. There are others who will question uh, that narrative. Um, We can see the Chinese equity markets, though, across the board are in negative territory. There's not some of the huge declines we've seen, though, in recent volatility on global markets, but they are substantial nonetheless, with the Hang Seng down 2.2%, CSI 300 down 1.9%, and the Shanghai Composite down 1% percent Let's have a look at the yuan. Of course, the dollar has been on the back foot against global currencies uh, over recent sessions as well. Uh, but the dollar just picking up, uh, as you can see, 0.6 and 0.45 of 1% uh, versus the onshore and offshore yuan respectively. Interestingly, uh, in terms of other commodities and products and how they are reacting, looking at the oil complex, you're kind of pushing on an open door at the moment. And I can hear those commodity speculators out there saying it's not fair. This isn't what we had as our scenario. Well, I'm afraid OPEC's going to have to come in if they want to shore up the price of Brent crude, because at the moment it is trading at year lows or thereabouts, uh, 81.26. That is not the uh, level envisaged by Saudi uh, and their allies when they started talking about production cuts. Uh, That was around about $100 a barrel, as you can see. So far, their actions and their promises of further actions have come to naught with the Brent crude price trading at 81.26, WTI trading as low as 74 bucks, which is a bit of relief for many consuming nations there. So, Jeff, what about the industrial firms and how they're faring in China? Yeah, let's talk about the uh, decline
0: we've seen here. So profits at China's industrial companies fell 3% in the January to October period as uh, COVID curbs, clearly weighing on the economy that is worse than the two point three percent decline recorded in the january to september period Uh, frederick newman is uh, chief asia economist and co-head of global research for asia at hsbc Uh, frederick good morning to you and and thanks for joining us uh, on the program this morning well let's just focus on those industrial profits for a moment here can can we argue that this is about the covid lockdowns or is there evidence elsewhere of drivers of slowing activity in China?
4: Certainly, the the lockdowns do play a role here, as you know. Consumer spending services are very weak, but the industrial profit numbers usually driven more by the construction cycle in China, and really what's happening in the natural resource sector. But there too, of course, you've seen a, a sharp deceleration over the course of this year, and so these numbers specifically reflect the weakness in housing construction, for example, rather than necessarily the impact on the services sector. So there are really two challenges: the numbers on the profit. It's really more a construction story than something that's uh, uh, driven by by the lockdowns. As we as we look at these
0: unusual protests across the country, it's very difficult to initially figure out what the consequences are going to be for, for, for the growth path from here on in. But inevitably, one suspects they will weigh on broader investor sentiment and just generate further uncertainty for those who want to put capital to work.
4: Very high uncertainty, although it is uh, striking that when you look at how markets traded today, for example, we haven't seen the outsized move that we've seen early in the year, for example, around uh, the Shanghai lockdown, for example, or uh, even more recently. So what that suggests is that investors are saying, yes, enormous near-term uncertainty. But guess what? Also, we're seeing already a lot of it is in the price. And we know that we have to get through really a tough few months before uh, the, the the economy can open. So near-term, things look very challenging indeed. But doesn't this process really accelerate, perhaps, uh, uh, the reopening process over the course of next year? And I think that's what investors are focusing on as well. Tough near-term, but maybe medium-term, there is an acceleration here towards reopening.
1: Uh, Frederick, how do we think about the near-term uncertainty, though, for businesses? Because we had a a protest at a Foxconn factory here. We've had protests that seem to be sweeping across various different cities. Does this pose any unrest to particular factories? Do we need to think about it escalating from here that poses a challenge for some of the corporates on the ground?
4: Certainly huge uh, challenges there. We would say, though, that... We've had uh, some of these moments before over the last couple of years when uh, we had lockdowns in China with fears about supply chain reliability, and really broadly speaking, these were fairly quickly resolved. Uh, China has deployed tremendous resources to ring-fence critical manufacturing. I know perhaps some headlines uh, are kind of dominated by, by an iPhone factory, for example, but by and large, there's been this tremendous effort to ring-fence production uh, when it comes to critical Supply chain. So, given that global demand for goods has actually slowed down, just look at the inventory buildup in the US. A disruption, short term disruption in China, is not going to have the big ripple effects that we had, say, uh, we would have had uh, last year, for example, when global goods demand was still on the boil. So, that's kind of a silver lining here. Yes, some disruption, but it should be manageable from a global supply chain context.
1: As we're talking about the short term and we've had these protests, uh, it is uh, fascinating to see that on the ground, though, the COVID spike does continue. We saw another increase on Sunday, fourth straight day of record cases. That is challenging short term, at least, isn't it? As we take a look at the situation on the ground, to what extent have we seen changes on factory floors that prevents the spread of COVID and still allows these businesses to continue?
4: Well, it's a, it's a varies a lot by province, uh, municipalities. Uh, essentially, we're seeing at the moment, we've seen a whole myriad of responses. Some cities locking down, others being trying to be much more pragmatic. We're just a news out today, for example, in Guangdong province, we see a reduction in PCR testing requirements just to remove some of that extra burden. So it really depends on which area you're looking at. Uh, some, some of the, the provinces have done enormous strides in terms of trying to ring fence local manufacturing uh, production, others obviously struggling with that. So it's really a patchwork, but I do think that's the first step towards a normalization because we need to experiment a little bit with the best approach going forward in terms of how the restrictions can be uh, tailored better to minimize the impact on, on economic growth. Fr- Frederick, I
2: appreciate that you sound moderately optimistic on the medium term on this story as well. But there are other stories going on in China which make me way more pessimistic than you, I've got to say as well, including the fact that there happens to be a property collapse going on at the wo- at the moment with a central bank which keeps offering sweeter terms in order to stop the debts from rising, uh, to keep those revenues going into the local governments as well, uh, to stop there being even more of an economic slowdown. Surely when you compound that, plus these other concerns we have, that actually the picture's a lot greyer. than, than many people think it's going to be and perhaps that you hope it's going to be.
4: Well, actually, on the property sector, uh, we would argue that we've seen tremendous effort in the last signals in the last few weeks that um, patience is running thin in Beijing about the the deterioration in that sector, that they're really starting to push back here. A whole host of measures being announced over the last couple of weeks to try to stabilize the property market. So I think there we've seen actually a silver lining that when it comes to property, essentially now the message is we need to stabilize the sector at all costs. You've seen that already in terms of uh, central bank action, relending windows to uh, to, to provide financing for developers. Again, the triple R cut on Friday. I do think there is an element of urgency here that we didn't have maybe six months ago. The big challenge at the moment is really what happens on COVID-19. How are these uh, restrictions evolving? Because that of course impacts also the housing market. But when it comes to pure uh, financing for developers, I think we are at really seeing a determination here in Beijing to do try to backstop uh, that particular sector.
2: In the meantime, the debts keep going up in China compared with the rest of the world, which have actually gone down in many cases. And I'll give you some examples. Non-financial corporate debt year on year, up to 159 percent of GDP. Government debt as a percentage of GDP up to 77.3 percent from 71 percent a year earlier in government financing. Uh, financial debts rising uh, to 53.9 percent of GDP from 47 percent a year earlier as well these debt levels Frederick are going totally in the wrong direction
4: they are, and I think Beijing has, for years now, tried to rein that in. But you know what? We have no inflation China at the moment, so there's no interest rate risk. That's different from other parts of the world. Actually, uh, when you look at a 5% interest rate shock in the U.S., that could uh, lead to quite a bit of ripples, and we also have most of this debt domestically financed. The Chinese still have excess savings. So what does this mean? Yes, there is a debt issue. We need to bring it down long term. We need to shift growth towards non-debt-driven growth. But really, is that an issue of the next 12 months? Is there a liquidity crisis? Is there financial pressures? Probably not because funding costs are not going up. Interest rates don't have to really be jacked up because there's no inflation issue. And you got that excess uh, liquidity still in the banking system. So long-term, yes, absolutely structural issue. But uh, near-term, that's not the biggest constraint at the moment. It is really what happens around the virus.
0: A slightly different question. You, you would have been watching the uh, local elections in Taiwan like the rest of us. And interesting that uh, the DPP seems to have been uh, losing a little bit of support in those elections. The National, uh, the Nationalist Party doing uh, a lot better, um, which when you frame it through the prism of the U.S.'s relationship with China, I guess uh, suggests that actually we, we could see some of the Taiwan-related pressure ease on the back of this local election result? Or am I, um, am I moving too quickly on the maths here? What, what do you think this means, if anything, for the way Washington and Beijing can work going forward around the Taiwanese question?
4: I think we should really look at this of what it was. It was a local election that was really fought around issues of cost of living, uh, zero uh, COVID policies, uh, how uh, vaccines were rolled out, et cetera. And there was just... Uh, a lot of local uncertainty, as as in most other countries in the world, rising inflation, for example, that's been driving this. I'm not sure that really uh the bigger issues, uh US-China relations, were really on the ballot in this particular uh election. So that, that's the first point to make. And then also, of course, uh local elections don't really impact too much what happens at uh the the the, the broader level. Um, and, and going through 2024, when there will be a, an election uh in, in Taiwan, that's still a wide open question as to what happens in in that point that, but that's ultimately what determines the broader direction uh, of of Taiwan policy.
0: Fred, good to see you. Thank you so much for for joining us this morning and walking us through your expectations for the Chinese economy going forward. Frederick Newman, uh, Chief Asia Economist and Co-Head of Global Research for Asia at HSBC. Quick question, Go on.
2: you have a lot of links in Hong Kong I do. and you've spent a vast amount of your career <clears> in that <throat> part of the world Yeah. I just wonder what the thoughts are of people in Hong Kong of what you've heard, of what they're hearing about in the mainland.
0: Uh, well look um, I was uh, glued like I think everybody in yeah. Hong Kong was over the weekend to Twitter and any other reliable sources of video information coming directly from the mainland and I think we've all pretty much looked at the same reports and all of the same videos here but i will make a couple of points i mean sam talked about that fire in xinjiang and i think the bit that she didn't mention was yes not only i think as it caused a lot of fear across the country about the consequences of being locked into a building as part of some ongoing covid restrictions and we've seen a lot of cities across china that regardless of the fact that there have been no cases or very low cases, they have continued COVID lockdown protocols because there's been a lot of room to interpret what the central government has said directly. And some of them have interpreted that as perpetual lockdown, which of course caused a lot of frustration. But in the case of this fire, um, not only was there the issue of whether people were actually locked into the building, but the fire trucks couldn't get Close to the building because of some of the blockades wow. and some of the um, barriers that were in place as part of the COVID protocols. So, that of course has also generated a lot of fear across the country about what ultimately the lockdowns could lead to. So, that has generated a lot of fear and that was represented in Hong Kong. You mentioned Hong Kong, and we'll just say something else. We just played some pictures there of people holding up blank paper now that form of protest emerged from hong kong and i think what will be perhaps particularly worrisome to xi jinping and the cccp is that a lot of the protest techniques that were used in hong kong appear to be being aped in mainland chinese cities because they would have hoped that using the great war, firewall of China and other digital mechanisms they could largely have prevented Chinese mainland Chinese citizens seeing the protests that were taking place in Hong right. Kong well what you're seeing now is clearly that people did see what was going on and they have adopted some of the p- protest methods that were used in Hong Kong and there is, you know, a lot of people do have VPNs in China to get around the great firewalls. So these are
2: virtual networks where you can avoid firewalls? You can
0: try, Um, but but what you're seeing is there is a game of cat and mouse going on on the social media sites in China, things like Weibo and um, uh, WeChat, where clearly The way that these protests happened across the country indicates, I would suspect, that there was a certain element of coordination. How do you get thousands of people to turn up in the same place at the same time? Mm. Very rare that that happens spontaneously unless there is something that is a catalyst. Now a lot of these protests started as vigils, so people actually went along just to stand there, hold a candle expressed their frustration about the lockdowns. But ultimately then they turned into skirmishes and violence and booths being turned over and cars being turned over and they degenerated into something more serious as far as the central communist authorities will be concerned here. So I do think we have to watch these protests very closely, particularly where they develop, because if they begin to develop in cities where there hasn't been extensive locking down and serious cases, that would suggest that there is a greater degree of organisation going on in spite of the authorities' control of digital technology.
1: And the big question is, what's the response going to be? I mean, we're all waiting. We think there'll be some sort of response. And I think uh, some reporting suggested that you didn't get a very strong uh, response from some authorities on the ground, that if anything, they'll try not to provoke some of the protesters. And I think that's fascinating because we have this narrative of very strong arm of uh, the Chinese authorities, the Chinese machine, and expect them to come in a, and um, force some sort of crackdown. Well, I don't think we've seen that to any large extent. Does that change at some point, or will the authorities try and roll out a reopening quicker? I mean, we don't really know how this plays out. I think that's the, the fascinating one for the international audience. Well, I
0: mean, the, the problem is this is this is a this is a, a slow burn. You know, I can't remember who it was who said things go slowly, slowly, and then they go quickly. Yeah but this is what's happened here because if you look over the past 3 years the big whites as they're nicknamed in hong kong and china these are the uh, i think they're police and security authorities that are dressed in the hazmat gear some of the things that they have done take your breath away you know pe- people who've Um, had pets killed because they are suspected of transmitting COVID or they've been locked out of their own properties or they've been locked in their own properties or they've had their possessions thrown out of windows. I mean, these are things that people would find it very difficult to accept in Western democracies. And yet they have taken place over the last three years as different authorities have interpreted the diktat from... The central authority, in their own way, and these things have been brutal, and they have been repressive. And I guess, even in a communist country with very strong repressive tools, there is a point where people just say, "Enough, we've had enough." Because uh, there are heartbreaking videos of people in Chongqing and other major cities who have been uh, restricted in terms of the food they've been able to receive, the medicine for their elderly relatives or parents Mm -hmm. or children and so on and so forth so it's perhaps no so surprise that uh, for some days. they have uh, broken
1: early days you may recall those reports that this would be a, um, a situation that would be over quicker because of the chinese authorities ability to come in here and put very strong measures in place around covid that they would be out of the situation quicker than western democracies where it would take much longer to bring about these covid restrictions you think about that sort of narrative that we got served up every other day early on in covid and sure enough uh, china out of the situation very quickly, but now as we see the reopening that's taken place in the West, China now very much lagging behind with these ongoing restrictions. So it's almost the, the reverse narrative where we have the success for China initially because of the COVID strategy, but now it's become a curse for them because of the ongoing restrictions versus the reopening in the West. Very different how the, the approach first up worked for them, but then now it's been uh, very negative for the longer-term picture.
0: You've got to remember, um, this is a country with a very large population. The number of cases we are talking about is relatively small. Mm. I mean, 40,000, mm. I think, is the most we've ever seen in, in, in one period, uh, which is tiny compared to what we've had in the UK or other European countries. So there are people still in China who've never had COVID. They don't know anybody that's had covid and so for them all they all they know is that for day after day they have been told that there is this terrible disease that can kill you that may come to you so they've had the life frightened out of them in many senses and they've had no experience of the disease Anyway, we've got to move on here. Our colleague in Beijing, Evelyn, has been tracking the protests. She's written a piece which you can read on our website. That's cnbc.com, of course. And, of course, we will come back to the topic throughout the course of the morning. And
1: ahead, Elon Musk says new user sign-ups to Twitter reach an all-time high as the social media giant prepares to roll out its paid-for verification service. We'll have details after the break.
2: Yeah, and for more on the zero-COVID protests erupting across China, head online to the Squawkbox podcast. We'll take a quick look at the U.S. futures uh, and how they are trading now. They're down, but not dramatically across the board. Right, uh, I see what the producers are trying to do. They're trying to get us back on track. But um, I'm going to take a very quick look at the US markets, which rallied 1.8% last week for the Dow, 1.5% for the S&P, and 0.71% for the Nasdaq. There's a couple of reads in there about Twitter, but quite frankly, it's not big news for the market. So let's just talk about the broader stuff that is more important, which is the data in the week ahead. This is a massive week of data. I think it's huge. We had the minutes, of course, and the rhetoric is we're going to slow the pace of hikes. We've seen peak inflation. That is the mainstream curve distribution top of the bell scenario from everyone now which I think is very dangerous as well but we've got a vast amount of important data this week including Wednesday I would suggest the beige book and the jolts data Thursday the personal income and spending with the PCE absolutely key there because that's what the Fed looks at And employment data on Friday discuss
1: dollar index I think that's key for this week because don't forget uh, yes. the more hawky shit tone that has been abating uh, some are hoping from the Fed that you've got this switch in policy that it's not going to be necessarily a pivot or pause but some sort of lightning up in the pace of increases. I think that's very key. We saw the minutes last week, of course, any uh, data reconfirmation that's going to be possible for the Fed will be very interesting and may sort of, I guess, accelerate the decline that we've seen in dollar index or, in fact, resurrect it in the opposite direction. So I think that could be quite key for markets. Uh,
0: I think oil. Um, funnily enough, I mean, I know we're all focused on the data and we need to be very uh, cognizant of what the employment data is going to tell us because we know that the Fed has been very focused on what the lag is between initiating its spikes and then how that's now feeding through into the jobs market. But ironically, that will be a very lagging indicator in a sense. At least I think in the spot oil price at the moment, you are getting the market's own interpretation of how quickly economic activity may be coming down in the global economy. And of course... In the in the U.S. economy, right. which is the the key economy to focus on.
2: So I I thought there was something going on, perhaps slightly ahead of some people in the oil market, when Abdulaziz bin Salman, the uh, his Royal Highness, mm. started talking talking about production cuts. And then I said to people then, I said, there's something going on here. They're worried about the market. We're now 18 bucks lower. We're 18 bucks lower despite production cuts from OPEC now. OPEC are meeting on Sunday the fourth, so we can't react on the day, but we will be able to react on the fifth as well. I think they will be stunningly concerned about the price action we're seeing at the moment. So what that is the, absolutely uh, a key event. What, what about
0: the, uh, the the, the man-on-the-street view of heating oil at the moment? Uh, for, for those yeah. who live in a part of the world where they don't actually get Right, gas, so I've been looking at gasoline
2: in the States, which has got a 3.5 <laughs> handle now. You're talking about me and when I've yes, pulled I the trigger on my winter consumption purchases mm. for heating oil. And I can tell you... Despite the fact that all you experts out there telling us how much refined product there's a problem, when it comes to heating oil, there is a lot of refined product around and the prices are going down. I've seen a seven-handle, i.e. 70 pence per litre, uh, for the 70-odd pence, not 70 pence, for the first time since the start of the Ukraine-Russian war as well. It peaked at 140, 150 in the UK. We're now trading at roughly half those levels. I think there's a lot of refined products around, partly because we're having a mild winter.